It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In London, I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The war in Ukraine has exposed and exacerbated some strains in the way globalization works. That raises troubling questions for corporate giants of the West who got giant by going global. Our correspondent lays out a survival guide for them. And TikTok has a knack for making niche things popular, from baby-led weaning to DIY carpentry. Now, a surge in book reviews on the app is proving good news for one genre in particular. But first. Today, Turkey is expected to put an end to 10 months of haggling by ratifying Finland's request to join NATO. Turkey's vote is the last one needed. Hungary approved the measure yesterday. For Finland, it puts an end to a policy of military non-alignment and brings tensions back to more than a thousand kilometers of a border shared with Russia. Finland applied to join NATO shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine last year. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. That was a big change for Finland. It had been a neutral country for practically its entire existence. That policy was forced on it during the Cold War by the Soviet Union. Its neutral neighbor, Sweden, did the same. And both of them expected to join NATO, but their applications had been held up by Turkey. Turkey, however, has finally come around. It says that it's going to vote to ratify Finland's uh, accession to NATO today. And that is a very big change in the way that Finland thinks about itself. Now, what's taken so long? Why was Finland's application held up? Turkey held up the applications both of Finland and Sweden, but its main problem was really with Sweden. Sweden has a very strong human rights policy, so it's wound up being the home of a lot of Kurdish refugees over the years. The Kurds have problems with Turkey. Turkey accuses a lot of Kurds resident in Sweden of being so-called terrorists because it says they're associated with those movements. And it wanted the uh, it wanted Sweden to deport uh, over a hundred of them. Uh, it also wanted Sweden to ban the burning of the Koran. But Finland is a whole different story. Finland has rather few Kurdish residents, and the Turks started saying back in January maybe they could let Finland get in without the Swedes. Initially, the Finns were very reluctant to do this because they have a strong sense of solidarity with Sweden. Uh, it was important for both countries' internal politics, so they moved together. But gradually, as they realized that this was the only way they were likely to get into NATO in a reasonably rapid time frame, they came around to the idea. 
But it is a big deal for Finland to shift from its traditional neutral alignment to being a member of NATO, an alliance member. And why have they made that shift from being neutral to now trying to join NATO? The reason they made the shift is because the threat that they sense from Russia has become so much more immediate since the invasion of Ukraine. I went up to Finland to explore why they made that choice and what it feels like for them to head back to an era where the border is hostile, as it was during the Cold War. And one of the episodes that's been formative for the Finns' attitude towards Russia and for their sense of themselves as a country was the so-called Winter War of 1939 and 40, when the Soviet Union invaded Finland. Here at the Rate border post at the end of the road that leads from Sumosalmi into Russia, there's just a white gate and a sign in Finnish, which I assume says that you can't go any farther. There is a tall observation tower for the border guards, but there doesn't seem to be anybody manning it at the moment. During the Winter War, the Soviet Army's 44th Rifle Division, with about 14,000 men, dozens of tanks, and hundreds of trucks, was trapped on this road, with deep snow on either side, as they tried to invade Finland. The Finnish military was vastly outnumbered, but they figured out how to stop the Soviets. What the Finns worked out was that if you knocked out the lead tank in the column of Russian armor and trucks that was advancing along the road, and then knocked out the rear tank or trucks, then the column would be blocked and stuck on the road, and Finnish ski troops in white camouflage would swoop in from the sides and gradually eliminate them. By the end of the encounter, Russian casualties outnumbered Finnish by four to one or more. In most areas where the Soviets invaded, most of the soldiers were Russian, but these soldiers were Ukrainians. And 82 years later, Ukrainians fighting for their own country did something very similar to this north of Kiev. They trapped a Russian army on a motorway and harassed it from both sides, using very much the same tactics which the Finns had used in 1939 and 40. Finland reacted with a shock of recognition, and that is one of the reasons why they decided to apply to join NATO. NATO's guarantee of mutual defense will help Finland protect its border with Russia, which is 1,300 kilometers long. And that will be a tremendous help for them in their ability to defend themselves against any future Russian invasion. And Matt, how do you think the Russians will react to all this? Initially, Russia tried to warn Sweden and Finland off joining NATO. Uh, they made a bunch of veiled or explicit threats. Russia's foreign ministry told Finland that it would take retaliatory steps of a military, technical, and other nature, and so forth. But at this point, they don't really have the capacity to threaten Finland much. And that's because they're a bit busy elsewhere. Yeah. There is not much of a Russian force in this region at the moment. They are needed for the so-called special operation. The Finns expect Russia to rebuild its forces in the area over perhaps three to five years. But the war has also made it much harder for Russian propagandists to influence public opinion in Finland. Their internet trolls and television propagandists used to be able to exploit the Finns' traditional preference for neutrality. But seeing Russia invade a close neighbor, which has a similarly vast border to Finland, changed that attitude very quickly. And how do the Finns feel about their Russian neighbors at the moment? 
What's your take of the sentiment on the ground? Most Finns don't dislike Russians as people, but they have a very long and fairly recent cultural memory of having a hostile eastern border. And returning to that is difficult. I was up in Sumasalmi, where relations recently were fairly friendly. Within the last few years, Finns were crossing into Russia to buy cheap petrol. Russians were buying holiday houses in the region. Russians took summer jobs picking berries on farms. And that's all over now. There are public opinion polls showing that Finns think that Russians individually are respectable people, decent people, but they have a very different attitude towards the Russian state. I mean, you can see that attitude on the Rate Road, where I was walking. It has monuments to the Ukrainian soldiers who died there. It also has monuments to the Russian soldiers who died there. But their attitude towards the Russian state is quite wary. But NATO membership comes with some military commitments. Do you think the Finns would be prepared to fight? Finns are very prepared to fight. That is not a problem that the Finns have. <laughs> um, Finland still has universal military service. They have a very high readiness to defend their country. To some extent, that has to do with their familiarity with the story of being invaded. I spoke with Phila Hiltuden, who I met at a local pub in uh, Sumasalmi. When you're living uh, next to border, people, they know the Russian. It's nothing new. So not, nothing new for me. Phila's hobby is roaming around in the woods with a metal detector, digging up war relics, which a lot of people in this region do. Uh, he took me to a compartment behind his garage, where he keeps a miniature museum of vintage gear. Wow. The whole thing is Please full of Russian that. military helmets. This is original winter war. Mm-hmm. It's Russian 45 millimeters. Phila's collection includes row after row of old Soviet helmets, He has an old metal plate from a mess kit with words scratched on it in Russian. It, it is Russian. I see. Okay, there we go. Um, Transcription is, is um, about uh, we don't have food. Нет еды. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Нет еды. which means no food, dying. Phila was in the army himself, like most Finns, and I asked him, while his wife and friends chatted in the background, if he'd be prepared to fight himself if he were called up again. I'm ready. Were you always in favor of Finland joining the NATO? Or did you change your mind, or what do you think? I don't know. I think, I think it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Finland has an election coming up on April 2nd, but All of the major parties are in agreement about joining NATO. That is not a divisive issue. But as you say, this is a hugely significant shift for Finland. But that's also the case for Russia. One of the interesting things about this is that, supposedly, Vladimir Putin's motivation for invading Ukraine was to try to push NATO back from Russia's borders. And yet the result of the invasion has been that Finland has joined NATO, and Russia now has an extra 1,300 kilometers of hostile border to deal with. It's had exactly the inverse effect. And for Finland, it's going to a state of hostility towards Russia, which is much more definitive even than during the Cold War. The Soviets succeeded in forcing Finland to remain neutral in the Cold War for 50 years. Now, Russia is dealing with a Finland that is actively aligned with NATO for the first time. And if history is anything to go by, Finland will be extremely helpful to NATO in its own mission of containing the Russian threat. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ori. 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Over the course of decades, low tariffs and shipping costs and an ever more connected world drove Western firms to spread out and to take advantage of cheap labor further afield. For a long while there, life for big multinational businesses was good. But Russia's invasion of Ukraine has thrown global business off its once easy footing. Worries over reputation and economic sanctions forced big Western brands to beat a quick retreat from Russia. Video posted to social media this week shows a long line of cars backed up at a Russian McDonald's drive through following the fast food chain's announcement. And, and worried Russians lined up to get their last taste of the golden arches. The tectonic plates of geopolitics and commerce are shifting quickly. So what are big multinationals to do in order to keep up? These are anxious times if you're the boss of a Western multinational. Tom Lee Devlin is The Economist's global business correspondent. Governments are becoming more inward-looking, whether that is export bans on China or subsidies for reshoring chips and green technologies. And most bosses of big Western firms have spent the lion's share of their careers in a world where business was becoming ever more outward-looking. Now they're having to wrestle with working out how to navigate a fragmenting world. So let's take a moment and talk about how things have been during that time, during the, the lion's share of those bosses' careers. What's the, the global business model looked like till now? The Western multinational is, of course, not a new thing. It goes back hundreds of years. But the scale of multinational activity today is something else entirely. If you look at most of the 20th century, the global stock of foreign direct investment, which is a pretty good proxy for the prevalence of multinational firms around the world, hovered around 10% of world GDP, with most of that held by Western firms. And then around 1990, it really began rocketing upwards. So by the early 2010s, that figure had passed 30%, with about four-fifths of that held by the West. The average American multinational today has nine foreign subsidiaries, and some have many, many more than that. General Motors, for instance, has over 100 foreign subsidiaries. But you said that things are changing. Yeah, I mean, there have been signs of trouble for a while now for Western multinationals. After the financial crisis, a lot of banks that had really expanded rapidly started pairing their foreign businesses abroad back. You also had, in the important Chinese market, a lot of Western firms steadily losing share over recent years to increasingly competitive local players. But... Over the last few years, the shifting sands of geopolitics have really started to elevate the levels of anxiety for Western bosses. So last year, America banned the sale of 
advanced chips and chip making equipment to China. And at the same time, you have America plowing nearly half a trillion dollars into bringing supply chains for chips, electric cars and clean energy back home. And the EU has now announced its own raft of subsidies to bring green technologies back home as well. So businesses are going to need to make some changes if they're going to survive. So as things change, then an undue obsession with China is not the answer. Where should companies be focusing then? So sales of American and European firms across the Atlantic have long been far more important than their sales to China. But even if you look at emerging markets in their entirety, that's a far bigger portion of foreign sales for Western firms than what China represents. Already you're seeing American firms over the past few years growing their sales in India far more quickly than they're growing them in China. When it comes to wages, companies from Adidas to Apple have started manufacturing in alternative low-cost Asian locations like Vietnam and India, where you have both friendlier governments and wages that are about a third of what they are in China now. You also have countries like Mexico benefiting from the move away from China. Just recently, we saw Elon Musk announcing that Tesla would open a new factory there. So there are plenty of other alternatives out there to China, both as a manufacturing destination and as a market to sell to. So you've been taking the perspective of bosses here and and the way the world seems to be shifting. But what about for the workforce? What does the labor market change look like? Well, I think it's undeniable that there is a concerted push now from Western governments to try and bring back some of those jobs, particularly manufacturing jobs that over the past few decades have been offshored by multinational companies. But at the same time, you have another trend here, which is that with speedier broadband, better video conferencing technology, and frankly, just greater familiarity with remote working, a lot of companies are starting to think more expansively about the types of jobs that can be offshored and and in particular looking hard at areas of white-collar work. Just last year, you had Boeing, for instance, announcing that it would build a $200 million R&D facility in the Indian city of Bangalore. And Bangalore actually has become a hub for this trend of, of offshoring of research and development. You've got Alphabet, Amazon and Microsoft all having R&D centres there, as well as Walmart, Rolls-Royce, plenty of others. So it will be interesting to see in the years ahead whether you have a divergence between the potential onshoring of some areas of manufacturing work, but the potential offshoring of areas that have traditionally been concentrated in the home market of a lot of Western multinational firms. So, so far, we've been talking about the the big multinationals of the West, but they aren't the only ones on on the playing field in in this globalized world. What about the big multinationals that are not from the West? Well, it's a great question, actually. And what you've seen over the past decade is that particularly multinationals from China have really grown incredibly quickly. And they've really started to broaden out into all sorts of sectors. You have MindRay, the medical equipment maker, really growing very quickly around the world. You have companies like Tencent and Alibaba expanding their businesses across Asia. And now, actually, you have Chinese car makers really making a a lot of noise in the global car market. In fact, China, as of last year, was the second largest exporter of cars in the world, behind only Japan and actually ahead of Germany. And so increasingly, these firms are a major competitive threat to Western companies. And so with that in mind about non-Western conglomerates, then what should the big Western firms be, be doing about all of that? 
Well, I think the worst possible thing they could do is abandon global markets. Over the past few decades, the returns to being big have increased significantly. And the reason that that's happened is the digital reinvention of industries from retail to machine tools to cars to tractors tend to involve a lot of upfront investment, but very low marginal costs once those initial investments have been made. And so if you're a a Siemens or a Volkswagen reinventing yourself for the digital era to stay at the cutting edge of your industry and fend off these new rivals, you need that sheer global girth to support those investments. So for a lot of Western firms, actually retreating inwards might not really be a viable option for them if they want to remain relevant over the long run, even in their home markets. Tom, thanks very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Here are five books that took me on an emotional roller coaster. Starting out with TikTok, oddly enough, has become the latest place to find, of all things, book reviews. Catherine Nixie is a Britain correspondent for The Economist. If you scroll through the videos, you may well come across reviews of one kind of literary genre in particular. Romance novels. Here are four of my favourite, friends to lovers romances. But these days they're not calling it that big broad brush category of romance, nothing so general. No, instead now, romance comes in all kinds of romantic subcategories. It's like Linnaean categorization for the heart. Another friends to lovers to strangers, a chance meeting in a coffee shop. friends to lovers category is a hot one. Is it your imagination or is he looking at you differently too? So too is enemies to lovers and forbidden love. I swear, that little grin gets you in trouble and you know it. And the interesting thing is, is it seems that this TikTok trend online is driving the sales of romantic novels in Britain in a big way. So by how much have sales been engorged? In the past three years, sales of romance and saga fiction in Britain have risen by 110% to £53 million in sales every year, which is the highest figure in a decade since Fifty Shades of Grey, in fact, broke all the other records. And publishers are starting to take note. So everyone in publishing used to regard romantic fiction with slightly Mr. Darcy-like disdain, and now suddenly their hearts are beating faster for it. Bookshops, if you go into a bookshop now, there are lots of pink books on the tables by the tills. They're not hiding them all at the back of the shop as they used to. And is this increase in popularity all down to TikTok? Well, TikTok is definitely one of the things that is changing things, but it's not just that. So I spoke to Molly Crawford, who is the editorial director for Simon & Schuster UK. And Molly thought that part of this is actually just due to the pandemic and everyone feeling a bit miserable and wanting some escapist fiction. And so what kinds of themes and characters have been the most popular? Well, they're being broken down, romance books, into these different hashtags, and you can just search exactly for what you want. So you can go for things like hashtag forbidden love, hashtag billionaire romance, hashtag smut talk, hashtag spicy talk, all of these things. Hashtag forced proximity, which sounds a bit creepy, but it means something like a couple who end up living in the same house or the same flat share when they weren't expecting to. Okay, a lot of this is not really chiming with those new trends in feminism and progressive social rights movements. I mean, does any of that filter through? 
Well, yeah, there's a hashtag called hashtag billionaire, which is not not, not that feminist. Um, but there are some things are coming through. So the, I was I interviewed a woman who writes for Mills and Boone. And she says that, you know, the past few years have changed the genre. So she says that the Black Lives Matter movement means that now people are less keen on writing and reading about Regency rakes because everyone wonders how they acquired their great wealth. The hashtag Me Too movement has meant, she said, that shakes aren't quite as popular as they used to be. Women used to like very masterful heroes, but it is generally felt perhaps that the shake is too masterful these days. And the other change is that it used to be millionaires, but now it's billionaires because, as she said to me, I mean, the cost of living, Catherine, look at the price of a stamp. Have these novels always fallen into these categories? Raymond's has always been an easily categorizable form. And, I mean, Mills and Boone itself is a perfect example of this. Mills and Boone, who are a very long-standing romantic publisher. So for decades, it's been breaking passion down into categories. I mean, it's an amazing website to go on. It's basically a census of female desires. So if you type in the word Italian, you get up about 330 titles or so. Greek gets even more. Welsh, unfortunately, gets four. But you can do it by characteristics. So brooding, you get 66 results. Cheerful, you get zero. So a lot of the classic romances fit nicely into this already. Emma is hashtag friends to lovers. Pride and Prejudice is obviously hashtag enemies to lovers. The packaging changes, but the human heart fundamentally doesn't change at all. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.